This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am Janice Leibovitz and you are my People of the Book. And this week, I am thrilled to have another visiting author to the Jewish Literary Festival. And this time, it's Beverly Lester, who is visiting from the UK. Welcome to the show, Beverly. Hi, Janice. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be part of this festival and really pleased to be talking with you today. Thank you so much for giving of your time. And your book, We Were the Newmans, this book came out in 2021. I remember, I mean, as we were chatting about before the show, I was given a copy of this book by a mutual friend um, just shortly after it was published. And I remember seeing an article, I think it was published in our um, SA Jewish report about the book. And it's it remains topical. It remains relevant. It revolves around the themes of forgiveness and revenge and memory and trauma and particularly transgenerational trauma. But it, it also drifts between South Africa and London and Chile, interestingly enough. But for the listener who hasn't read the book, give me a brief outline of the story. The story, We Were the Newmans, is a, a story that um, sort of goes backwards and forwards in time. And it deals with whether it's really possible to forgive and the multiple ways in which that impacts on us and the onus on us as individuals, what it means if we don't forgive, actually how possible it is. And it's the story of, um, it's, it's told through the experience of the main protagonist. Her name is Ruth. And she, as a, oh, as a, a young teenager has been part of a terrible domestic tragedy, an act of violence, which she survives and what that does to her and what she makes of it as she travels forward in her life. And it also sits alongside her professional role, which is she becomes a psychotherapist and she works with people who have had huge and very difficult experiences, either personal or political and uh, traumas and tragedies and how that's impacted on them and their work to wrestle with where they are around revenge, reconciliation and forgiveness and what she learns from them and her ultimate journey. It's also a love story and what she learns from that. So it's, it's, you know, there's quite a variety of things going on, which are all to do with the human experience. And you yourself are a psychotherapist. Yes, I am a psychotherapist and, you know, a lot of the work of a psychotherapist is sitting with people and holding stories and sort of looking over experiences of life, which are largely about loss, not loss just only in terms of bereavement, but loss in terms of what is not possible, what once was possible, what will never be again, Um and these are things that we all have to bear as part of the universal condition. And it can be very painful. So these are sort of components of life, aren't they? Yes. And I was very interested in that from clients that I've worked with, a lot of whom grapple with whether it's possible to forgive. 
and what that means and at what cost and at what cost if you don't forgive. But what Ruth grapples with as an adult is why a lot of these people don't seek revenge. Yes and no. I mean, she's, I think the other element of the story, the main bit of the story for me in writing it, what I was curious about is where the personal meets the political. And she has to wrestle with that because of people that she works with as clients and what recognitions are offered to them and what recognition is offered to her or not offered to her because her trauma is from a domestic violence and she's very shamed. She's very ashamed. She's filled with guilt, even though it's nothing to do with her. It's something that has happened to her. And so on the one hand, she's working with people, for example, in South Africa within the remit of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and around reconciliation. And at the same time, she doesn't have that as part of her lived experience. And how can she create that for herself and how can she find meaning for herself? It's very challenging. But to go back to the beginning of your story, so I just would like to add, it's very cleverly constructed, the book and the way that you've written it. The construction I found extremely clever. The reader for quite some time during the book is not actually sure what has happened. We know that something's happened. It's a traumatic event. You get the bones of the story. You get a gist of of what that event is, but then you unravel it slowly throughout the book until you get that aha moment when you're told exactly what actually occurred that day in October 1976. And the fact that you chose 1976 was quite meaningful. So talk to me about that. And 1976 you know, is a pivotal point in South African politics, and I suppose, in in memory. And I wanted to also have something with respect, something ordinary. I mean, it's an experience of, of terrible domestic violence. So, you know, that's not ordinary, except for the families where that kind of thing is happening behind closed doors. And it's not going to be taken up as a political cause. So that's personal. I wanted to juxtapose the two. And then later on, when Ruth is in Chile, you have that again, when she's caught up in demonstrations that she walks into, that she wants to be part of, or um, the women who are dancing with their missing in response to the terrible years of the Pinochet era. And again, there is nothing for her. There's nothing for her because her trauma is personal amidst this political maelstrom around her. So I, I just I was very taken with that that construct. It's actually quite devastating that she doesn't have that outlet that she sees that other people have. And it's actually quite pivotal to the book that she does doesn't have that outlet. But you build up in the beginning you build up this picture of 
1970s Jewish Joburg through the eyes of a young girl. And, I mean, it, it does become immediately quite apparent to the reader, if not to her, because she's a young girl and she looks up to her mother and her father, as even though she describes them as very separate entities. And, you know, it's quite obvious to the reader that something's definitely not kosher in uh, in the Newman kingdom. And so she, there's her mother, Maureen, there's her father, Ava, and Maureen is determined that no matter what's going on behind closed doors, that outward appearances have to look good. Everything has to look like it's all okay on the surface. The typical... They went on their Karoo Drive holiday and they had their Friday nights where the grandparents came over. There was the hush-hush little arguments that happened and the reader will understand what's happening. But as a young girl, she didn't understand what was going on. She has her two little brothers who she loves, although she just refers to them as babies. She's bored with them. She's got no time for them. And you build this picture you you paint this picture that is although not idyllic that is it's life you create this picture of life that then gets shattered and then as I said we don't actually know what happened but she then gets removed from that and she lands up in London and she has no idea where she is who she is and she basically has to reconstruct herself and she does that with the help of these cousins who she has never ever met it's all completely foreign to her how does one go about doing this do you think i think that on negotiating a recovery from trauma i think regardless of what's around you you're on your own you're on your own you could have a room filled with you know it's a bit like um I suppose it's a bit like imagine being, imagine suffering a bereavement. And, you know, as we know from our very rich and ancient customs in Judaism, where you are surrounded by people throughout a shiva, your house can be absolutely packed with people. And no matter how many people there are, you still, when you go to sleep at night, you're in your own head. Yes. Until the door, people start filling up and the food, the whole, the whole overwhelming and absolutely incredible experience. There's nothing that is going to stop you from those moments of being alone. And from my professional experience as a therapist, I have learned that that's also what happens with trauma. You think, no matter how skilled you might be as a therapist or as a psychiatrist or a social worker working with someone in that kind of recovery, there is still that incredible isolation. And that's if you have the same language, if you don't even have the same language, because, you know, in the United Kingdom, we have refugees from all over the world who are really struggling and they often don't even have English, how to communicate that. Even with language, even, you know, you're on your own. I thought that was quite an interesting way to intensify that experience, to be with people who don't know you, because actually when you're going through that kind of experience, Nobody can really know you as you are to yourself in those moments. And they take on this young girl who's been through this horrific experience and they become a family, which is actually quite beautiful. But to move on, as 
Ruth becomes older. She grows up. She she becomes older, and she meets who she thinks is her soulmate, um, this man Jose, who has been through his own trauma. She clearly recognizes something in him that exists in her, although he is very open about being able to share what's happened to his family. And even though he does that almost immediately after they've met, she still, she cannot share what, what has happened to her. And so while she's recognized that they are possibly similarly broken, she cannot share with him. I'm interested to know why you chose one of her subjects to study as Spanish and why you decided that he was going to be from Chile and that that was going to be where they then returned to, where he returned to and took her with. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, because they had a version of that long before that arrived in South Africa, because it was to recover from the Pinochet era. But the main difference between what happened in Chile and what happened in South Africa is that there was a space offered for people who felt they were victims, who had lost family, who'd had family taken from them, murdered, the disappeared. But there was no space for perpetrators. It was as if there were no perpetrators. There was no ownership of that. And the, the, the TRC was a further step in response to what happened in Chile. So that is why I really felt that was core to the book. Um, and I think also I had had an experience very early on in the first year that I lived in the UK, which was 1990. I was, I was working in publishing and I was sent to Chile for a piece of work that I was doing. I had before that I'd been, I'd gone from South Africa to Israel to Chile. I knew nothing about Chilean politics. I was obviously saturated with South Africa. I'd been a student um, at Wits in the 1980s and then I'd spent four years living in Israel. Um, so I was saturated with Israeli politics. Um, and I arrived in the UK and knew nothing about that. And when I, arrived in Santiago, the person who collected me from the airport said, oh, would you like to see where Pinochet lives? And I said, sure. I'd never even heard of him. <laughs> I'd never even heard of who he was. And we went on this drive. We went around this huge house with huge walls. And that was where Pinochet. And it didn't resonate. It didn't mean a single thing to me. And it was only some time afterwards, and I mean a couple of years afterwards, that I had learned something about not just thinking at the world through a a South African and an Israeli lens. And I had gone to visit a friend who was in a hospital in London. And at that hospital, Pinochet was recovering as well because Margaret Thatcher had offered to uh, help him with some recuperation. There was a massive demonstration outside the hospital. Oh my gosh, what, what is going on? And then dawned on me and I felt very ashamed and very, um, but really horrified that I had in my ignorance been taken to see this house and said, like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, wow. I think I felt really quite haunted by that. And then when I started my research in, in the process of writing this book, you know, I learned a lot about it. And yeah, for me, it was, it was pivotal, absolutely pivotal. 
that you talk about the important role that the women actually play in healing broken societies. And you, you talk about the rituals, the rituals yes. that they perform. And two in particular, and excuse my pronunciation, the Apilera. Yes, I mean, I don't speak Spanish either, but um probably would pronounce it similarly to you, but I don't think that's the correct pronunciation. Um, but yes, hugely, hugely political act, I would say. You know, women have always found ways through the gaps, through the cracks to um, find a form of demonstrating politically, whether it's what's going on in Iran with with how women behave and are dying for it or you know, this example that we're talking about, there's always, there's always been a way. And, you know, in Israel, the women who stand up right in front of the Knesset and demonstrate, there's always that women do that, you know, and these huge tapestries, you know, some of them have now made their way to America and they are worth an absolute fortune. And that was a way of making money and bringing it into the country. And it was a way of telling stories and a way of commemorating, active and alive. And I just found that so um, moving and dynamic and you know, such, an, such an act of resistance. No matter what, somehow, you know, somehow life and energy find a way. Yes. And I mean, these tapestries are made up of... Um, materials of their missing loved ones' clothing. The other ritual that you you mentioned was the la la cuencha, the dance. If you want to just sort of have the cheap version of what the dance looks like, you can find that video performed by Sting called "They Dance Alone." Yes, they dance alone. Yeah, at this massive concert in, um, I think it's in, somewhere in Argentina, actually. And this elderly woman comes onto the stage and she does this. It's very haunting. It's excruciating. It's absolutely excruciating. And it's filled with dignity, dignity and love. And I was very much impacted by that. And actually, when I was writing the sections on Chile, I spent the entire time when I was writing those sections, listening to a singer called Mercedes Sosa, who I've been listening to her music for years. I didn't speak Spanish, but these are revolutionary songs and they are very beautiful. And um, I found really, really impactful for me. You know, there are different ways that we communicate and we don't actually need to have words to understand the words, to pick up the feeling. That's what art does for us. That's what music does. And that's what music does. Absolutely. It unifies us without a doubt. Yeah. And to see um, a woman doing what is a traditional couple's dance with a photograph is absolutely chilling. But if that's all you've got because your beloved has been snatched in the middle of the night and you never, ever hear from them again or of them again, what else can you do but dance with their photograph? Yeah, and And that is what that song is about, what what Sting's song is about. And to dance in, in a silence almost, you can't, if something can't be denied. The other thing I wanted to talk about, obviously, I mean, her entire life is impacted by this event. But let's talk about the people around her. So in this case, her best friend, Liz, who mm-hmm. is also, I mean, we can't discount how this affected her life. And initially, Ruth is not able to deal with that. And Liz 
tries and tries and tries to contact her and she tries, she writes letters that someone quite thoughtfully packs for Ruth and sends off with her when she leaves South Africa to go to England to these cousins who then look after her. But when something traumatic happens, one thinks about the person or the people that it happened to. But often no thought is given to those peripheral to those people or that person. So tell me about your thoughts on writing about Liz. A lot of what I'm hearing about is not just what happens to individuals in terms of an event on them, but also their experiences as bystanders, which is traumatic. So, you know, in the same way as you stand at a a pond and you throw your pebbles in and you see the ripples, we're impacted. I mean, I think, you know, something happens in the city that you live in, even if you're not there and you're not in the street, you, you know, you're impacted by that. Of course you are. So I felt that was really a, another way of trying to highlight the impact of trauma. Trauma traumatizes so I think that is, is, is what I spent a lot of time thinking about. In my actual writing process of writing Liz's letters, that was very, very, very challenging. And the period when I was writing about that, I had very young children at the time. On the weekend, if I was writing those sections, my husband would go off for a couple of hours with our children and come back um, so that I could have that space to write. And invariably he'd come back and he'd be full of what they'd done and where they'd been. And I would open the door to them and I would have tears running down my face. Oh my God. Because it was, it felt so traumatic, but it, it was, you know, we've all been best friends of, of our best friends. It's not hard to imagine that, or it wasn't hard for me to Imagine that, um, that level of trauma where it's something so beyond your control. I mean, what happens to Ruth is beyond her control. What happens to Liz, it places her even further outside of that. And again, she has, you know, no official place within it. So again, if we sort of return to sort of the scene of a, of a shiver, you know, for the mourners who are at that shiver, they sit on their chairs, but you've got to be in direct lineage to the person who has died, but there can be other people who are close and sometimes even closer who don't get that seat. You know, if you're a step parent or a stepchild or you are not married to that person or you're having an affair with that person. So these are not legitimate, legitimized where trauma can be absolutely enormous or you can be a best friend. You know, some of us, our best friends can be more important than our blood relatives. Absolutely. Absolutely. I cannot agree with you more. You talk about Liz's letters, and letters are actually quite a pivotal vehicle that you use um, throughout the book, and particularly in one section of the book. Talk to me about using that and, and why letters rather than conversation, direct conversation or why did you use letters? I'm quite keen on giving characters space to breathe. And I don't think you can always achieve that with dialogue because dialogue requires something of he said, she said, he said, she said. Yes. And if one person is 
monosyllabic and the other one is full of more words. And I, I think that letters, for me, in the terms of a writing process, they create more time and more space and it's internal and um, more opportunity to be contradictory, to say this and then to mean this and then to change your mind and to um, maybe say things that you dare not say out loud. Who of us have not, you know, had thoughts in our own head that we choose not to share? So a letter is a sort of an in-between, a halfway house, or at least that's how I experience it. Yeah, it just works perfectly. It fits, it slots in so perfectly. And the whole section that you've used with um, the letters from someone, I, I don't want to give too much away because I really feel it's, it's an important book to read. And I really do want um, people to read the book. So one section with letters from someone who has lost someone and who is faced with the, the TRC that is found it difficult to read. It's, it's very, I can't imagine what it was like to write, but it is, I had to put it down and come back to it a couple of times. It was, it was painful. It was deeply painful. I mean, it's interesting that you say you had to put it down and then come back to read because I've been spending some time thinking about the literary festival next week. And I'm going to be moderating a panel as well as being interviewed as an author on a panel. And I've been very much struck by actually a lot of the topics that we'll be thinking about next week really deal with quite dark, violent experiences and stories. And some of the preparation I have found quite quite heavy going and I've had to put books down and think about it and come back to it and it made me start to think wow have, have I written a book like that is that what it what it what it's like um and I think that when you're maybe immersed in it I don't know I I, I just I, I it made me think about how people perceive my book I'd not thought about it in that way so that was actually what I was going to get on to next about the session that you are participating in at the Jewish Literary Festival and also the session that you are moderating. And as you've mentioned it, let's chat about that briefly. So this session that you're going to be moderating is titled The Trauma of Seeking Justice. And you're moderating the session with um, three authors, and they are Anthony Osbecker, Liz McGregor and Janine Lazarus. Anthony's book is um, Fruit of a Poison Tree. It is a true story of murder and the miscarriage of justice. And that is about the Ingolotz murder. She was murdered by her partner, Fred van der Favor. And it talks about a failed justice system. I need to just start there from what I've learned about the book. There is something inconclusive about who murdered. Yes, apparently. Apparently so. I do have the book and I do need to read it, but apparently he was acquitted because they said that the evidence was insufficient. He says the evidence was faked. There's a lot of um he said they said involved there. Um Janine Lazarus's book Bait and I've actually interviewed Janine on my show, and that book is quite heavy going. Liz McGregor is a journalist, and I think she's written quite, um, she's written on quite horrific incidents and events. 
was trying to find out what um if there was a particular book that she'd authored that um I mean it does say that that you're going to be exploring the painful challenge as told in each of their books either through their own stories or those that they've reported on as journalists so it sounds like it's going to be a fascinating session you've read up on all of it and I'm sure you are more than prepared you know what you're saying and again it's highlighting to me so much trauma just from those titles and just some very brief understandings of what that is the, the trauma and then the trauma of seeking justice and in the seeking of it how you have to return to the just to the yeah, to, to the, the event yes saturated in it and the commitment to that it's just extraordinary justice for whom and is there justice and justice to what end so it's it's just the most enormous, enormous. It's going to be a, a great session, I think. And then, of course, there's the session that you are participating in, which is called, it's titled Facing Fact Through Fiction, which is going to be moderated by JLF's very own PR maven. She is fabulous, and she is the most outstanding interviewer, Beryl Eichenberger. She is fabulous, and you are participating in that with Hedy Lampert and Angela Rothbart, both of whom I've interviewed on the show, and they're both fabulous. And it's about real and relevant issues in novels and how it's easier to face fact through fiction. Do you think that's true? For me, for my process um, of um, how I like to learn and also how I like to teach, because um, I'm, I'm a psychotherapist, as you mentioned, but I've also had 15 years of working and training people to be therapists. Actually, I think that it helps us to digest things that are quite overwhelming in ways that we can relate to through fiction. Fiction holds our hand a little bit, helps us to set up, and then maybe it gives us the courage to maybe look at something more deeply and then so we can go in and out. But I think it's a a great way for teaching and it's a a, a really helpful way to start to metabolize things that are so hard to metabolize. I think it's going to look, I think overall, I think the festival is going to be fabulous. We've got some fabulous lineup and 101.9 Hive M is thrilled to be partnering with the Jewish Literary Festival this year. It is on the 21st of March. That is next Tuesday. It's a public holiday. Tickets are just 350 rand for the day. For all sessions, you can select which sessions you attend. You don't have to pay per session. It includes lunch. It includes a cup of coffee. And if you so wish, there is other food for sale. There is additional coffee for sale. There is going to be a pop-up bookstore as well. And I'm sure that the authors will be more than happy to sign your books. And I know that they're looking forward to meeting everyone who is visiting on the day. Beverly Lester, it has been wonderful having you as my guest. Thank you so much for giving your time. I'm really looking forward to meeting you at the festival next week. So that'll be great and um, safe flight over as well. So thank you, Jill. I'm really looking forward to that and hoping that when I arrive, the sunshine will still be out because I'm looking at grayish skies right now. So I hope that there will be a sunny welcome. South Africa always gives a warm welcome, regardless of the weather, but I hope there is a sunny welcome for you and definitely looking forward to meeting you there. 
for you listening. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Read what you like, but please do read a book.